Hey folks, this is Ryan. Before we start this episode, I want to express our sorrow and outrage about the recent mass shootings, especially at Robb Elementary School. My wife's elementary school teacher, my, my son is nine years old. Um, we are in the deep part of grief uh, for our country and for that community. And I, and I want to say that in this episode that re- we recorded a few weeks ago, we talk about the intense stress that our culture puts on teens and children. And our tone is light, especially in the beginning. And I just ask you to bear with us um, because this episode does have some really important information um, from our guest, Eric Minton, who is a trained psychotherapist and has worked with lots of teens and children. So um, we're going to jump right into how we had edited it before and uh, just bear with us. Um, Thank you. Welcome to Touch Podcast. This is Ryan. And this is Nate. And we are here talking with Eric Minton, who in just a few short days, like 11 days, his book, It's Not You, It's Everything, What Our Pain Reveals About the Anxious Pursuit of the Good Life, comes out and... We are very excited to talk to Eric because he has been summoned here today because he has made an accusation on our wonderful American culture. And I, 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 my feelings are so hurt because all the work we do on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and the selfies and the pictures of our food and this <laughs> um, endless pursuit of just looking and trying to keep up with the Joneses, you've like... Um, you apparently have an issue with it. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's the best intro that I think I've gotten so far. So I could have read, I could have read the summary off Amazon, but I didn't, did I? No, no, well, that's what I'm saying. I, you should have done most of my branding earlier. Speaking of the internet, so thanks, Ryan. I really do appreciate that. Um, yeah, no, I do take umbrage. I do love that word, umbrage, with the way that so many things about our lives have been drained of creativity or weirdness because of the way the internet kind of functions in our world. And one of the things that, that caused me to think about this, and it's kind of the intro to my book, is that I was working uh, for a little while after graduate school as a psychotherapist at a, an underfunded high school in our community where I was doing individual and family therapy with high school students there and I even had an office in the high school, which is a really cool program. I love my job there. And I remember sitting in the central office waiting on someone else. I think it was like an adult or family to come in. And I met this other student who I was not seeing for therapy, uh, who just happened to be a student at school. And they were just, gosh, they were just really angry, just pissed. And I, because I, I am just, um, clinically interested when people are angry. Like, I just want to know everything about it all the time. Unless they're angry at me and then I leave. But when they're angry at other people, I'm like, oh, tell me more. Yeah, um, I, I, it's, it's probably just from high school and too many uh, rewatches of Mean Girls. But uh, mm. this person was, they were just, he was just really worked up. So I was asking him, I was like, dude, what is going on with you? And just a ton of profanity later, he let me know that some other student that he was friends with had stolen his brand and had put it on Facebook Live. He'd gone live on the internet with this this guy I just met's brand. And I remember asking him, I said, oh, how long have you been a brand? And he was like, he just kind of stared at me as if I'd asked the world's dumbest question, which again, teenagers are geniuses at doing this kind of thing. And I, he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, you know, how long have you been a brand? Like you've been branding. And he was just like, for the longest. And that was it. It was the end of our, the end of our conversation. And it wasn't terribly profound. But I just remember thinking at the time, I was like, you know, I was thinking about so many things as a teenager and copyright infringement was not the thing that I was thinking about. Mm, Um, Right. And so for me, like this is kind of the seedbed for, huh, where did we learn this kind of way of being a person to the point now where the Internet used to be this kind of function of modern life where it would serve the purposes of actual physical humans and now it's becoming this thing that actually human life serves the functions of the internet. And so mm. it feels like all of our, all of our selfhood is just doing it for the gram, essentially. Uh, so for me, like that's, that's the kind of some of the larger questions or at least the jumping off point 
uh, for some of the larger themes of the book that I'm, I'm trying to ask questions about. That is outstanding. And let me say, for in words of introduction, Eric, speaking of you being um, drawn to angry men, which is not how you said it, but when I say it, it sounds a lot different. Um, you and I met. I like I have a type. You do, yeah. <laughs> I was your angry man. Um, <laughs> Eric and I met at the back of a little conference in Tennessee. Yeah. And I think. I don't remember exactly how we were drawn to each other, but it was probably around quick, cringy facial expressions. And then I felt your, your energy, your kindred energy. And so I, I, I gravitated towards you. You probably recognized that I was an angry man and then our thing just <laughs> happened. Oh, yeah. And, but to, to say for the world out there, Eric is an ordained Baptist minister. He's a psychotherapist specializing in marriage and family therapy. He has a practice in Knoxville, Tennessee. He does coaching and consulting with pastors, nonprofit leaders, business speakers, institutions, and helps lots of different kinds of people foster a better, better way of living. And he, uh, he is a pretty prolific article writer before oh, this nice. book. I've enjoyed uh, reading his articles. He writes in Sojourner, G Ma G's Magazine, Baptist News Global. He's done some stuff for Red Letter Christians. So he's pretty prolific. And when this book comes out, um, I'm so excited. I've pre-ordered it. It will arrive when the Amazon gods um, say so. Um, so we're excited to hear about it. And, Thanks, and also... To add to this as well, there are many of us who are in positions as parents or as teachers or as educators or as ministers or as even psychotherapists, and many of us tend to um, discredit our own thoughts and ideas in regards to social media and stuff on television and stuff on films. And just to kind of put power back into your hands, let's remind ourselves that in these industries, the power is in the, it's in, it's in the hand of the consumer. Who, whatever you choose to click on or watch or buy, uh, this is educating who am, whoever you are watching uh, that you want more of it. And to hear, to hear thoughts like Eric brings to the table and how to wake us up from the, from the brainwashing that media naturally does, it just naturally does, it's just so wonderful and refreshing to hear so, um, yeah, I love this so much. Uh, what, what else have you learned out there with, with, with patterns, with, you know, with what we're doing with anger, with our emotions? And yeah. Yes. No, Nathan, tell, us, tell us more. First of all, it's very kind of you to say. Uh, secondly, one of the things that I think that, again, spending a lot of my time with teenagers, and there's a, there's a tradition in my, and, and I would say also Ryan's um, theological tradition, where regardless of fit, uh, if you graduate from seminary, divinity school, some sort of pastor training program, and you begin working for a church, you are immediately commissioned to care for the spiritual, emotional, and free time activities of uh, adolescents and young people. And so regardless of whether or not you're good at that, you're saying, oh, hey, you know what, uh, what iTunes is, so uh, here are some teenagers, go nuts. Um, and so one of the things that I, I guess introduced me to some of the larger concepts of this book, but also a lot of my work just in general, are the ways that I was taught to talk about teenagers uh, from a, a family therapy perspective. And I remember seeing uh, one in particular where I had a, a really great mentor and there was a particular student who was exhibiting some really unsafe and just frankly, uh, not real appropriate behavioral patterns. And the tendency from everybody in this person's life was to really double down on not only shame, but we've got to find a clinical diagnosis for why this thing is happening. And so it was really important for the family, for the healthcare industrial complex that I represented, for lots of other people, teachers, administrators, figure out what's wrong with this kid. Because this kid's behavior is the problem, this kid is a problem. And I was reminded that uh, historically family therapy has a different approach to asking those kinds of questions. It's not asking individually who is like responsible for the problem and what is the individual diagnosis. Family therapy is asking, oh gosh, like what symptoms are these people embodying for the sake of whatever systems they find themselves living in? Mm. And so my supervisor was great at, at bringing me back to that point and he would regularly ask me, uh, Eric, how is this helping this kid survive a system that's completely out of control? 
and secondarily, what symptoms, like because kids are, are symptoms incarnate of whatever pain or dysfunction is existing in a system around them, and they're terrible at hiding it. Adults are really good at hiding whatever pain or problems they've been taught to kind of bear, and kids are way worse at it. And so actually they're a great window, or if I'm, I'm taking an explicitly Christian um, format, they're like symptoms incarnate. They're embodying the pain of the world that they're living in. And they're a great window into what's not working for lots of us. And so for me, that, that ends up then shifting the way that I started thinking about, well, when kids are in schools and they're not themselves, well, gosh, like what is it about this school environment? What is it about their home environment? What is it about this systemic, sociocultural, technological, theological environment that they find themselves in that has taught them to bear the weight in this way? What's not working about all of this? Uh, and so for us, that ends up then helping us ask larger questions instead of uh, spending time like uh, Dr. Google does a lot of heavy lifting for the people I see. And so when they come into the office, uh, typically they're pretty apprised of, well, I'll probably have this thing going on and I've got some anxiety and I've got some depression and some sleep disturbance. They do most of the heavy lifting for me in the intake. And then I, I typically ask them, do these diagnoses help? Like, does knowing this help you? And sometimes they'll say yes, like it kind of cleans up some things or helps them kind of have some direction. And I, and I don't disagree with that part of it. Uh, but most of the time, and I'm reminded of uh, one student in particular who uh, said to me, uh, after listing probably four or five different diagnoses that this person had received, uh, well, shit, no, uh, I just thought you would care about it because you're the therapist. And for me, mm. one of the things I think that is helpful is that the way that that kind of language sort of creates this individual burden, like something is wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And I, I appreciate the organizing principle behind diagnostic labels, but at the same time, I think sometimes it, it prevents us from asking more interesting or larger questions about, well, gosh, like what is living in this kind of world doing to a lot of us? Because frankly, some of these things we're experiencing, ah, they, they might be helpful tools to help us see like, oh, this I, sounds like it just doesn't work for you. And your body is rejecting the experience of trying to be a human right now. Uh, so that's, that's a little bit of that framework that I'm trying to bring to the whole of the book is saying like, oh, what if we ask larger questions about our technology use and what social media is doing to us as people? What if we ask larger questions about what the professionalization of American childhood and the fact that we're turning kids into what Malcolm Harris calls human capital, where they're attempting to just accrue value over time? and eventually produce a return on that investment when they reach adulthood? Or what does it mean for us to grow up in, frankly, white American Christian subcultures that have taught us to view uh, Christianity as a kind of spiritual anesthetic for living in a system that is profoundly unfair and unjust and oppressive? And frankly, at the bottom of all of that, what's the thing linking that together? And my argument is that it's hypercapitalism. So it's this economic superstructure that all of us are taught to ignore and, and accept as gospel truth that drives the ways that we brand ourselves, the ways that we solve our problems, the ways that we view work and material worth and physical worth and value. And all of it has sort of become less a system of exchange, free exchange of goods and services and more a way of being as a person. Um, so that's, that's kind of the larger uh, themes of the book are asking these kind of bigger questions about like, oh, when you're noticing you're not yourself, Maybe it isn't you. Maybe it's everything else, uh, if that makes sense. Um, it, yeah. it, it, it does. And the one thing that really is clear when you say this is in the media world, how much money is spent being advertised to kids? I mean, at right now, there's almost $200 billion spent annually advertising to kids because they're, they are capital. It's it's. It's corroborating with what you just said. I think that's one. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, invest investment tools for corporations because if they spend this much money on these children at these different age, they'll be able to cash in when they have cash in their pocket and they've graduated college and they have their first time job, and so they're going to buy the the car, the clothes, the you know the life, emulate the Instagram. Snapchat star and, and something else that that I, I think you were speaking into is you know you you were mentioning about how um, 
a lot of us may have become hands off with what our kids are consuming, um, what they're experiencing. And bet between 30 years, now and 30 years ago, there's this new word called trauma that's now being really familiar with everybody. And it's almost as if the layout has changed in just 30 years alone and like a generational gap and things have to shift. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if, you, if you've observed similar things or Ryan, if you've observed similar things. Um, I just think that the new languaging of trauma and, and wellness is having a profound um, reflection point for all of us in, uh, who've grown up Christian. No, and Nathan, that makes a ton of sense. And I'm reminded of a book that I'm reading right now that I, gosh, I really love is uh, Chuck Klosterman's book. It's called The 90s. And it's this oh. overarching uh, take from Klosterman's perspective on what the 90s means. And so he, ha he talks about all these sociocultural flashpoints, these entertainment flashpoints, uh, fashion, ways of speech, uh, what it means, it, everything from Seinfeld to Kurt Cobain to uh, military incursions and politics. I, he's, gosh, it's an amazing book. But one of the things I think that keeps sticking out with me is he was arguing that the rapidity or the just the severity of change between, let's say, someone who was an adult in the 90s and someone who is an adult or adolescent in 2020 or 2022 is just culturally massive compared to the differences between someone who was an adult in 1970 and someone who's sure. an adult in 1990. And so what he uses as an example of this is the way that in 1970, you would buy music of a discrete album on, pressed on vinyl for roughly you know $13.75. And then in 1990, you'd buy a discrete album pressed into a compact disc for roughly the equivalent of $17.75. You would buy both of these at a record store and you'd have to make discrete choices about how you were going to spend your 20 bucks to buy music. And then if you try to explain that experience to a 17 year old in 2022, who walks around with a device that has access to literally every piece of recorded music across all space and time that they pay a monthly fee to. It is, again, it's like explaining space travel to cave people. Yep. You know, so, so if, we're, if we're talking about the ways in which the world technology has really reshaped the way that our world works or the way that our brain works or the way that we consume music, it was devastating to me to have somebody, a friend of mine asked me the other day, Eric, what are you listening to right now? And my response, I used to kind of be able to categorize of like, oh, like if it were the late 90s, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm listening to the Counting Crows uh, live album where they play Raining in Baltimore and it's just like <laughs> organ and piano and it brings me to tears every time. And that was how I could kind of construct myself of the kind of music that I was into. And now it was like whatever the algorithm on Spotify tells me to listen to is what I listen to. Right. And it's just, right. oh, it's just devastating. The, ca the Counting Crows station. <laughs> yeah. 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 Brought to you by the Counting Crows is kind of what I'm yeah. listening to now. And so, you know, it's, Absolutely. it's so that's what we're talking. And, and Nathan, I'm, I'm kind of uh, skirting your, your question, but I think if we're talking about, gosh, like what then do these kind of systems or environments do in terms of playing a shaping role in how we see ourselves and each other and the world, there is this kind of, I think, profundity to talking about like, well, gosh, like what does it mean to then talk about trauma or uh, what ends up kind of being connected to that in religious spaces, uh, spiritual abuse or spiritual trauma, or what does it mean to have a conversation with people now where it's just in the water, this diagnostic language about like, oh, well, that person's bipolar or that person is depressed or that person's anxious or that person has a personality disorder or like, you know, the language of the diagnostic statistical manual now infiltrates cafeteria conversations in high schools which is just mm -hmm. fascinating. And I'm not saying that as a positive or a negative thing, it just is happening. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, that we have to ask larger questions now all the time about like, what do we mean when we say these things? Right, yeah. right. And, 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 and to, to like, I, I feel like Eric, whenever you're talking, I feel like you're opening up more things for both Ryan and I to comment on, because this is this, the way you open up these situations and provide new ways to see into them is so empowering. Um, to, to add on what you were saying that I think was so, um, um, so interesting, um, is that 
if we were to look at youth ministry as a technology, I mean, this is something that has grown like in the 1970s, which did not exist before. And so even the sudden explosion of youth ministry in which before there would be none, and now it's become like a full-on job description and a curriculum, a, a, a thing you can major in in, in, in seminary. Um, there also seems to be um, something that... Uh, that tells us about uh, where we've shifted our parenting responsibilities. Like, are we expecting to parent our own kids or are we simply dropping them off for church to take care of them when technology and human development is changing so fiercely um, with trauma and with sexuality? So even with sexuality, you know, kids now, they have these phones, which they have access, and the access to that sexuality perhaps matures them so much faster um, and the exposure to sexuality perhaps matures them so much faster than than we can comprehend um, that a lot of us who are still dealing with sexual trauma may feel generations behind um, our kids that are having these cafeteria conversations. I'm just making an observation. I wish I had something to offer there, yeah, but I'll, I don't. I'll ask, a, I'll ask a question on top of that, and that right. is... I appreciate your observation, Nathan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it might not be directly related to your book. Doesn't matter. But <laughs> this is, uh, so my wife's a teacher. Mm-hmm. She, you know, she'll do car duty. She's opening the cars. Kids are getting out of the cars. Um, and, you know, uh, she's doing lunch duty. She's teaching, all, she's a music teacher. So she teaches all the kids of the school. And um, you have some kids who, are clearly have things going on at home. They're, they're really struggling and you'll have a parent who gets called in because of a behavioral issue. And the, it's clear 100%. It is like the parent is fucking up these kids. Like the kid is trying so hard to bare knuckle it and be good in class. Yeah. And the, the parent comes in and, you know, can't hear any critique of their kid. They can't, um, you know, they're unwilling to withdraw, um, you know, they're take their phones away or adjust their lifestyle in any way because it all had, it must be the school's fault because their kid doesn't behave that way at home. And, um, and that, you know, right now is, has been an, ep- it's a bit of an epidemic in schools. One reason I think is because kids, spend a year not going to school and so now they're having to learn how to be a kid in school and relate to other people but the other thing is that parents um there are a lot of parents who are very reluctant to hear anything in about their kid that might ha- force them to change something about their lifestyle oh. so what you're working with families how do you approach a conversation with a parent who's clearly the problem? <laughs> We're giving you the tough ones, man. This is, this is good. <laughs> and um, I'll bill you for, later. Yeah. <laughs> for our listeners at home who are thinking, maybe we're, we're in a tough spot. Maybe we yeah. should all go into the family, the family therapist down the road. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's a good question. How uh, am I going to get kicked, kicked in the teeth as a parent? That's what, that's what you want. I want to increase defensiveness as quickly as possible. No, uh, but to, let's, let's try to do this. But to, to kind of meld uh, Nathan's observations and yeah. Ryan, your question together, uh, I think one of the things that we're noticing, if we're talking even from a perspective of what, what, what role, like what does it mean to be a parent right now? How does that function? Like what does it mean within the context of these larger church systems where we have youth groups or family ministry or elementary age ministry or these kinds of uh, complicated realities? And are we outsourcing parenting to technology and phone use or to churches? And, you know, and then even when we're seeing uh, behavior choices from our kids at school that cause us to have concern as educators, administrators, therapists, humans on the street, you know, soccer coaches, whoever you are, uh, that we're thinking like, oh, how do we talk to parents about this? How do we talk to families about these sorts of things? Uh, So again, that's a very wide ranging question. And so for me, Personally, my first question is to say that right now in America, parenting your kid has never been harder. Full stop. Mm -hmm. So when we look at time use data in terms of how much energy goes into active hands-on parenting 
for parents now compared to parents in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Men right now are doing three, four times as much active parenting of their children than men in the 50s, 60s, and 70s were doing. Now, if you look at that, and again, I'm probably misquoting the data, but it's out there. And so there's a huge disparity in terms of the, and that means like hands-on, like eye contact, conversating, like actively parenting their kids. Men are doing far more than they've ever done historically in American history. Now that is also true for women. Women in America right now are spending more time actively parenting than any generation of female parents in the history of our nation in terms of how they categorize time usage in terms of time spent with kids, actively engaged as parents, women are doing that. Now the trick is, is that both men and women are working more than any generation of people in the history of our country. So our average work in terms of what we are spending at the office or spending at the store or wherever we spend our time as employees, we're working more than any people have in the history of our country. The expectation for hours, the expectation for time spent on a device responding to email, the expectation for how we comport ourselves as employees of a business, that expectation is far greater than it ha ever has been. And we're also parenting far more than any other generation in history. So when parents are defensive, I say me too because it's very hard to be a parent in America right now. And if my response to you is you're not doing enough and you are the problem and you are not working hard enough and you could fix this if you read more, blogged more, got in Facebook group chats with other parents more and got on Instagram and read about Instagram influencers who are just you know showing you their hashtag messy life, that if you did more of that, and maybe with more succulents, you would experience success with your children. <laughs> Amen. Amen. You know, and so for me, when I see all of that, the first thing I want to know, again, just like when I'm drawn to, to angry men at Baptist conferences and uh, central offices in high schools, uh, <laughs> I want to ask, gosh, like, what does it feel like right now to try to be a parent? In this world? Mm. And most people will tell me, uh, it is a clinical term you not, not, might not be familiar with. It fucking sucks. Oh, that's and in the so, DSM. Yeah, eight, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. the new, that's the new, this the new drop. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and so that's the place we start, is that it does actually suck. We just tried to parent through a global pandemic where some of us were forced to keep our kids at home with us for like two years, mm -hmm. and others mm -hmm. were having to make choices about sending their kids to school, in a situation where we had no guardrails for determining whether or not they were going to safely come home or safely expose other educators, friends, family members to the virus, we have, again, continued to not fully understand the ramifications of what we're doing. Because the choices are impossible. It's keep my kid at home with me while I also try to work from home if I'm lucky and have a knowledge-based uh, job. Or keep my kids at home with me and find someone safe to watch them while they do online school while I go to my job that it's demanding that I do in a situation that's completely out of control and I know that learning loss is happening to my kid every time I keep them at home because this has been a great study to determine when kids have gone to school versus when kids have been kept home, what kind of learning loss are we experiencing in the kids who have been kept home? It's severe. Mm -hmm. And so for us, like these are the choices that we're being asked to make right now as parents. Work more, parent more, know more, do more. And then when people say, like dumb therapists like me, hey, mom and dad, have you thought about using I statements with your children? <laughs> I, I do actually want to want to set like fire. You are yeah. an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do love those feelings. It's like, oh, I feel like you're a moron, and I would yeah. like you to stop asking me that question. You know, like, mm -hmm. no, that I want to burn the building down. Like people, sure, begin sure. with that. So for me, yeah, let's start with the pain because the pain isn't wrong to be upset or defensive right now because it's hard to do this job. As wow. A so mm. a number one, number two, then let's get to the bottom of it. In fact, like what is your pain telling you about who you are as a parent, who you are as a person, who you are as uh, a spouse, a friend, a worker, all of it. Because again, friends, if shame could get the job done for us, it would have already worked. Right. Right. And so for me, that's the place we start is listening to the pain that we experience in a situation that is completely out of control, especially if we are parents. 
because we have been abandoned by an infrastructure, frankly, a religious infrastructure, uh, sociocultural infrastructure, uh, a educational infrastructure, and we've been constantly told you're on your own. Make your own decisions. You know best. And for us, that is exhausting. Uh, so that's that's the kind of place that I begin with all of these questions is that it's a really unsafe and unfair environment to try to raise your kid. And it feels like it's getting worse. And if I tell you, you need to work harder to fix this, I'm not all that sure that's even going to work. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's the starting point for me. And then we kind of pivot it to and that's kind of how the book works for me also is that like when you're noticing that you're having a hard time surviving in this kind of world, maybe the first question you need to ask isn't what's wrong with my brain. And maybe the first question you need to ask yourself is, well, gosh, no wonder I'm depressed and anxious. Have you looked outside lately? Right. Have you gotten on the internet lately? Maybe your body and your brain and your heart and your soul are paying attention to what it's like to try to be a person right now. And so maybe instead of shaming it, you should treat it like your kid when he or she is really scared in the middle of the night and you get down on one knee and you ask a lot of questions and you stay really connected as long as you're not super tired and then you just yell at them and tell them to get over it. But when you're yourself, you lean in real close and you ask a lot of good questions and you remind them that they're not alone. And so that, friends, is like the first thing that I want to do with any pain that we're experiencing. And Ryan, I'll tell you right now, man, I, when I used to work in a high school, I would see parents come in and they were used to having these kinds of conversations with administrators. And so they'd enter the room already at like a seven. Right. And so the first thing, and then the first thing the school does is enter the room. Oh, you're at a seven. I'm going to go to an eight, try to get control of the situation. Mm -hmm. And then we don't even talk about anything interesting because already we're in competition with each other to determine whose view of your kid is correct. And that is the thing that I'm trying to get at in the book that when scarcity and competition determine how we make all choices with each other, with our families, with our jobs, with our theology, if it's all undergirded by the sense that there's not enough to go around, everyone is a competitor, it turns life into like a Black Friday suit. Mm, oh, and so for right. us, like that's that's the first thing. We want to lower the temperature of the room and say, hey, we're all on the same team here because we all care about what's happening to this kid. So starting from there, what do we need to do? Because it's not working right now. And that's that's kind of how I want to, to frame all of our conversations is like, hey, yeah, yeah, no, 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 but we're on the same team. This sucks, 100%. So like, what's a more interesting thing that we can do and talk about rather than like just like getting mad at each other on Twitter for something? <laughs> wow. That, that hit all those comments <laughs> really succinctly, man. That was brilliant because I, I think you're right. We we have made it well the evolution of technology the evolution of our languaging around our own pain um the uh, the evolution of even the direction of how we're looking from outward to suddenly inward and how that causes the implosion of what we built outward like this whole red pill blue pill crisis is the most refreshing sentiment I've heard in the past two years. <laughs> I'm like, wow, finally, that actually makes a lot of sense. And the, the pain is something that strangely I can find relatable comfort with because I know I have that and I know I can get to know it. And healing and peace seem like a distant thing at the moment. But being able to work with something that I'm surrounded with, um, it's... I, I really, I really appreciated that, man. That was really powerful for me to hear. That was amazing. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Um, one of one of the things that um, provided, and this is the kind of second, the first half of my book is pretty depressing. I'll just be honest with people, because uh, outlining a lot of the things that have played a powerfully shaping and sometimes toxic role in developing our, our individual ideas of what it means to be an American or a person or a Christian or a human or a dad or a mom or whoever we are in the world um, is really, really difficult to kind of frame out and recognize. And it creates this sense of hopelessness sometimes in thinking like, where do we even start? And for us, that's where I want to kind of pivot and say that there's this really helpful or actually two really helpful um, frames that come from a family therapy approach that we, I, my wife and I typically do in our practice with each other. 
um, or not with each other, but <laughs> with people, uh, we, we try not to do therapy on each other. That's kind of the rule in our house actually. Um, but honey, we do that with, honey, our, with the people do you think we spend you time can with use an I statement? And one of those things is this concept of destructive entitlement. Now, what that means is that, uh, when kids enter the world in an ideal scenario, they're entering the world owed love and trustworthiness from our therapeutic tradition, which is a, a therapy tradition called new contextual family therapy. And it then pivoted into this thing called restoration therapy now. But that the idea is that, oh yeah, kids didn't choose their birth. They didn't choose their parents. They didn't choose their guardians. They didn't have any choice or autonomy or control over what happens to them. They just enter the world. And the people who choose to bring them into the world are the ones that owe them love and trustworthiness. And in a perfect scenario, what happens is that how kids pay their parents back is by not giving them money or giving them love and trustworthiness for what they received. It's keeping that in circulation for the next generation of people they choose to bring into the world or like weird dog breed they choose to raise and send to farmer's markets with them on the weekends, whatever their, their <laughs> thing is. And so that's, that's how it works, that love and trustworthiness are delivered altruistically, generation to generation, without expectation for return. That's what it means to be a parent. And so sometimes what happens in our tradition, we would say, is that the world is complicated and difficult. And so somewhere along the way, that gets dammed up in your family tree. And so instead of actually a steady delivery of love and trustworthiness and safe, secure, stable adult relationships that parents have with their kids, that instead what happens is that a vacuum then gets created because somebody didn't do their job. And so then parents who didn't get what they needed from their own parents begin accidentally or forcibly taking them from their own children. A good example of this is if you go to any t-ball game anywhere <laughs> in America on the weekends. Ryan, you're already laughing, so you know where this is headed. I, I was there on Saturday. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, and it's very clear who uh, actually had a, a really positive connection with uh, his or her parent. When uh, someone, you see something transcendent in left field, which is your four or five-year-old who's picking dandelions and wearing a backward hat and looking like the ideal picture of childhood. And you see this scene <laughs> interrupted by a dad who's like, and usually it's a dad, although Ma, I should say equal opportunity. I've seen the mom sure, sure. Um, just shouting, what are you doing? Get your head in the game. You got to hustle, man. <laughs> and full disclosure, I am my son's assistant soccer coach. And sometimes uh, that voice sounds like mine. Because yeah. it is. And, you know, and it's immediate, this impulse to take, again, this thing that is, oh, like the thing that you longed for for your whole life, if you've desired mm -hmm. to be a parent. And you see it. It's like walking around outside your body and it looks perfect. And your move is not to say, oh, my word, are you having a great time? What else do you want? What else do you need? Like, oh, I love this. Do whatever you want. I don't care. It's just baseball. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's really boring, actually. <laughs> and instead, you say, why are you not working harder? Yeah. And that is that's right. destructive entitlement. It's taking your kid and turning them into something that you use to make yourself feel stable, secure, successful, happy as a parent, rather oh, wow. than giving that to them because you already have those things. You got it from the people you come from. And so wow. when when that happens in families, my goal is to interrupt that and return the proper order to the way things work. Now, one of the things that happens when destructive entitlement kind of runs relationships between parents and children is that there's this thing that happens called parentification, and it's where kids end up turning into mm -hmm. parents or adults in families by taking yep. on roles that are developmentally inappropriate or not their, their jobs as kids. Now, regularly when this happens, it's not that they're like mom and dad held a job interview and said, okay, which one of you wants to be a third or second adult in this family? Because, you know, the relationships ended or someone unexpectedly died or someone has a new job that requires them to work a, a shift that isn't normal working hours or they have to work out of town. And so it's not like uh, dad is like, hey, mom got this new job, so I need one of you all to be my partner now. OK, <laughs> but it sort of accidentally happens to, to kids. And so sometimes kids then end up feeling that role by waking people up for work and by getting a second job and helping pay bills or by taking care of all of their siblings or by just being a really good kid all of the time as to not rock the boat. And 
or they go the other extreme and just decide this doesn't matter. I don't want this role. This is completely out of control. And I think things would be better if I stole dad's car and crashed it through the front of old Charlie's. And so either one of these things are what we would call, oh, that's a result of parentification of kids being asked to take responsibility for managing their parents' distress and by performing a task in the family that is developmentally inappropriate. And so one of the things that I'm asking people to think about when they think about human life, when they think about our connection with God and with institutional Christianity in America, is that these are ideas that also infiltrate the way that we think about our relationship with God and with American life, is that all of us have been parentified by an American structure or system that asks us to take individual responsibility for things we have no business being responsible for, like choices about our healthcare. And I don't mean choices like about what happens to our bodies individually. I mean, choices like when you cut your hand open on a can of refried beans accidentally, your first question is not, oh, like what's the nearest medical provider that I can go and have my hand sewed up? I wish I could tell you that was my first thought. My first thought is like, have I met my deductible? And which emergency room is in network? Mm -hmm. Because again, like I'm asked to take responsibility for a lack of public health care in our country by being individually responsible for it. Or just like we were talking about as parents, we are on our own to make decisions about public health, about educational choices. Now here in Tennessee, we we ban a lot of books these days. And so we're, we're told regularly that we are the best sources of information, not librarians, for what is an appropriate thing for our kids to read or not read. All the while schools allow cell phones to be used by nine-year-olds all of the time. Oh my goodness. So these are ways in which America parentifies us, turns us into to people that are responsible for its well-being. In fact, we have no control over that. And then we have these experiences where we're told similar things, especially at least in my Southern Baptist evangelical uh, white Christian tradition that I'm also supposed to take responsibility for how God feels about God's self all of the time. Oh. That if that when I sing songs, that my goal mm-hmm. is to make God feel happy or secure or strong, that there's no God or, greater. Or pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. That God, that like, God, ex- yeah. Go ahead, Ryan. I, no, I was, I'm, I'm like, it, those of you who are just listening, you gotta, you could see Nate, and my head just bobbing up and down and stuff. So you can't hear our amens and hallelujahs, but they're visually available. And I wanted to to jump in and say that, like, the just that church culture, because of it of its comb- it, the way it's sort of married to capitalism and success and getting bigger and better and happy, happy. You know, the happier church experience makes you then the better Christian you are kind of thing. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you're a good Christian because you felt amazing in the worship service and like that, that really, that experience I like to refer to as the pleasuring of God church Mm. where it's like you look at the lyrics of the songs and you look at the, the sort of the trend of the sermons and, you know, we get hyper obsessed about trying to please God and make God happy. And so my little smart aleck way of saying it is like, oh, did you pleasure God today? You would say it that way, Ryan. <laughs> I would say it that way. Not, I don't say that necessarily to everybody. But, Thanks. Oh, I love I f- it. I feel like I've, I hope God feels satisfied with me because I sure tried really hard to please him. Mm-hmm. Well, I, Him. I, him, I, by know, the yeah, way. Yeah, to be fair. <laughs> and, but, 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 and, and like, you know, that's... One of those things is, you know, kind of in that evangelical subculture I grew up with in college, where it's like Jesus is my romantic partner, that yeah. I love to go on dates with Jesus, that I love to spend time with Jesus at coffee shops, that I'd like Jesus to help me find a mate if possible. If not, I'm happy mm-hmm. just being married to Jesus myself. Um, mm-hmm. All of these sorts of concepts, first of all, that I have a lot of interesting questions about, like, oh, what does that do to us? over time. But secondarily, I think if we're thinking about, you know, for me, I grew up calling God a heavenly father. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the language that was given. And then the way that I was taught to be in relationship with this heavenly father was to take total responsibility for managing, maintaining, and making sure that this heavenly father felt connected to me and took care of me. And if he didn't, if he was far from me, or he didn't show up on time to pick me up from soccer practice, or if he killed the kid he really loved so that he didn't get so mad that he killed me instead, um, Mm -hmm. that uh, it was my fault. 
you know, if God felt far from me, it's because I had done something wrong. I'd sinned, you know, mm-hmm. or if God felt um, distant or angry with me, it was because something was wrong with me and I had brought that on myself. And for me, we were never kind of taught to think through that from a perspective, even in, in seminary of like, what does this, if there's no way on earth, and, and at my seminary, we had a school of psychology on campus. There's no provider who, if they're doing family therapy and a kid is saying, it's my responsibility to make my dad feel good about being a dad all of the time. And if I, if my dad doesn't show up or is distant from me or is hard to read or is difficult to talk to or uh, sometimes hits me or uh, threatens to send me to hell forever, um, that it's my fault. And if actually, if I just worked harder as his kid, that all of this would be better. And he would, he would actually be happy and safe and better. When that happens in a smaller degree, I call DCS. Mm. But when people talk to me about Christianity, they're taught that that is the most orthodox way to view their relationship with God, to get, to take total responsibility for maintaining their heavenly dad's feelings about being God. Mm -hmm. And for me, there is nothing more harmful for us as people than to take responsibility for something that isn't ours to be responsible for. Because a healthy, and uh, I have a good friend of mine who's also a therapist who's written a book, and his name's uh, Crispin Mayfield, and he wrote this book about attachment theory and our relationship and how it forms that relationship with God. Mm. So his book is called Attached to God, and I think it is a very easy, straightforward read to begin looking through the language of attachment theory and how that might apply to the ways that which we have a secure, insecure, avoidant relationship with God or the God we grew up with in many cases. And so for me, I love using that kind of framework to then think through when people are in pain connected to their religious tradition. The first question I think we need to begin asking is, what was it like for you to grow up with this heavenly parent? What did this heavenly parent teach you about being a kid, teach you about being a person, What did you uh, imagine your job was in this relationship with this heavenly parent? What are you responsible for maintaining? And what has doing all that done to you in your actual relationships with other humans on earth? And for us, because I think a lot of the, the problems we're seeing with, especially white evangelical American Christianity, is that we have been parentified and by a God who is destructively entitled toward us. And it reflects an insecure or frankly toxic or sometimes even abusive relationship with a parent that as a therapist, I would not spend any time trying to sort out. I would just work to keep that kid safe. Boom. Yeah. And so I think for us, the first questions we need, again, questions we need to keep asking is that when we are feeling pain, if we individualize that and take total responsibility for the pain we feel without listening to why it's upset, we keep it in place. And so it, it, if, if that if that kind of makes sense from a framework. Yeah. And so I, I, I with the, the last half of the book, the, the goal is to help people kind of reframe their relationship to whatever God they grew up with, whether that was American capitalism, whether that's social media use and technology they're using now, or whether that was like me, uh, a white evangelical, mostly masculine subculture that mm-hmm. taught me to take responsibility for all of these things that I have no business being responsible for. Mm. Yeah, Wow. Wow, I, th- for for myself, when when I'm hearing this, um, I don't have kids, so there's a maturation that happens that that I'm that I'm that I'm not speaking from, and the in hearing this, um, it can be very disorienting and confronting and, and scary, because um, it feels like almost as if you're talking of my own parents, right, and. Um, and so when I have read articles on, um, on kids who have um, learned, ha- who had to develop with an abusive parental type of environment, you know, when I read the, that journey for them, the very first stages when they are confronting the possibility that they had a hostile living situation is the same emotions I'm feeling right now when I'm hearing you talking about how we may have uh, passed on an unhealthy, well, a dangerous, toxic form of parenting and churching and, and God-relating. Um, 
So, uh, wow, this is very, very revealing. And um, some of us may, one of my first, another reaction I tend to have is to, to get numb um, and to, um, yeah, simply to kind of get numb and, 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 and not knowing what to do when I'm hearing everything you're saying, like, oh, not only is this maybe wrong, but it could be this, 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 this. Yeah. Like, I have a feeling this other stuff you're describing, I'll probably be able to feel into later because the numbing is so intense right now. Like, whoa. Yeah. So I just want to encourage you, uh, the listeners out there who, who are out there, when you listen to this episode, this episode specifically, please um, consider listening to this one several times to get the deeper things Eric is saying, because sometimes we can't hear these things at first, um, and uh, because of all the all the experiences we've had, and sometimes it just takes a little bit more time to kind of get into it again, into it again, yeah. maybe maybe weekly for a little bit, and and so just consider that while you guys are listening. Yeah, yeah, and buy the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, and, oh, yeah. go ahead, Ryan. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just gonna say, no, you want. Blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I, yeah, right. Well, let's just talk over each other for the next uh, five to seven minutes. Over you? Um, no, no. I, I did want to respond to Nathan's point because I think he's making sure, a sure. good one. Do it. Uh, and it's, you know, really uh, a natural and frankly important response. Kind of like when you were saying, Ryan, that our move is to be initially defensive when we're receiving new information about something that, like, for uh, in all intents and purposes, before that point, even if it's not helpful for us, has given our lives gravity. It's kind of helped us keep our feet on the ground. And so mm-hmm. even if I'm asking you to kind of reconsider that part, I'm, it, it can feel like floating or really unstable. And usually in those sorts of places, it's almost like standing on one foot. And so the move can then just be to kind of get some more stability to slam that foot down and be like, no, this is not what I'm, I can't, I can't get into this. Mm-hmm. Or it can do that more kind of numbing move, which is to withdraw or disconnect or even kind of do something chaotic and avoidant like substances or just like not return any calls or emails the rest of the day, or just kind of numb out, whatever it is your move. And I would say the first thing that anytime that happens that I want people to do is to just notice that it's happening and to try to put both feet back on the ground by speaking to yourself the way that you deserve to be spoken to when you were a kid having the exact same experience and the way that you deserve to be spoken to by by a heavenly parent that is perfect. Like, I think Jesus taught us to believe that heavenly parent is perfect. And when I say perfect, I don't mean doesn't screw up. I mean, is totally complete and okay, independent of who you are as this parent's kid. And that you can be whatever version of kid that you decide to be, because this heavenly parent doesn't require you to be something that makes this heavenly parent feel more like God. This heavenly parent is perfect. This heavenly parent knows that they are already God. They don't need you to complete that for them. They're already whole. So what they do is non-anxiously remain in relationship with you, independent of who you are, because they care about what happens to you. And so when, in my experience, when we find that kind of connection, even if it's just with ourselves, of speaking to ourselves as children, the way that we deserve to be spoken to, that's how I want people to treat their pain because you probably learned that pain about yourself and those coping strategies that you use when you're in that place, when you were at times of peak brain plasticity, which would have been, oh, you know, first six months of life or around nine and 10 at late elementary school, or again, between 15 and 18 at the end of high school. And so there's a reason when you're in that kind of stress that you're not going to do anything creative or interesting. You're going to do the same thing that you've always done and you're going to feel the same kinds of feelings that you frankly probably felt for a long time because for instance if you're surviving a bear attack you don't need to suddenly think well is that a black bear or a brown bear i should probably get closer at least google let me get a good picture (laughs) no you get the hell out of it bear attack you're going to die so again you don't do something new you do something old and so what we need to do is that when we feel pain is stop taking individual responsibility for shaming it so we can get right back to work We need to listen to it and slow down and treat it like the kid that learned to do it the first time and speak kindly and compassionately to it. Listen to it for a second. Just like I believe uh, on the other side of lots of negative things that have happened to me in church culture that God actually wants to do with us. Because, for instance, there's this great line in the Sermon on the Mount 
where at the end of it, Jesus is addressing a crowd of people, and he, he intros it in the way that I think you all maybe should intro most things, where he says, though you are evil. I love that line. That's a really great way to just kind of generate a lot of positivity to, about what, to what you're going to say. I'm There's into no it. defensiveness, no defensive no, reactions. No, that's how I begin every therapy session. <laughs> though you are evil, let's consider some, you know, no, it's, it's classic Jesus. Uh, so anyway, he, he says this thing. He's like, when you encounter a kid who's hungry and that kid asks for bread, do you give it a stone or it asks for fish? Do you, do you give it a snake? And when I meet parents in my office who have been raised in environments that were really, really unfair and sometimes unsafe and sometimes really abusive, that their move is not to immediately turn around and do that to their kids. Their move is to do almost the exact opposite. Now, sometimes in doing that, they end up creating more complexity or they're not perfect because they're humans or bad things are happening for them that we need to work on. But the first impulse is for them to not recreate the, the crap that they grew up in. It's to do something different. And so I love that line actually from Jesus. It's like, though you're evil, though you are incomplete, though you are raised in a toxic and unsafe world sometimes, though things are crumbling around you, your impulse when you see your kid or your impulse when you see children, or your impulse when you see the world is when it asks for bread, you don't give it a stone or you don't give it a snake. You take care of it. And, do, and then he goes do you not think that God is like way better than that? And so for us, if the God you grew up with is a worse parent than the worst parent, you know, I think you've got the wrong God. Wow. Does, does that make sense? Nathan, Amen. so for me, like that's, that's kind of the frame that I want people to operate in that when they're feeling that pain, I want them to connect to it, treat it respectfully and bring it back to it. Like you need to reparent yourself with a kind of heavenly parent that, actually undergirds all of us right now. I think it makes so much remarkable sense. And I think it combines two things that both Ryan and you have said today, um, <clears throat> at least for me. And, and one is the, one is the dissociative parenting. Uh, when, when, when parents aren't realizing that they're looking, I'm, I'm not sure if this is the right term, but when parents aren't realizing that they're looking for their own, looking to their own kids for to be their parents, um, parentification, I think is what you called it. Yeah. And so, so that, um, along with, uh, when, when the emotion, the emotionalism, um, when some of us, Ryan was saying about how. Uh, Many of us feel like we have to please God, so we give him our, our pleasing emotions. And so we're always showing our best. Um, and yet, underneath that, we are theologically addicted to suffering. You know? We're addicted to suffering, yet we're offering God our, blessed, God our best. And so we're in a constant state of duplicity. Mm, and this, yeah. is our, this is our baseline frequency that we pass on to our kids mm -hmm. once we give them all the rules. <laughs> And it's, and if what, so what I'm getting from here is like, if this was our starting point from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, from early America, when we had less channels and music streams, when we had, you know, when, when parenting through government was more singular and parenting through entertainment was more singular in those times, um, philosophically, even the, the philosophy of Americana was more singular at that time, um, to now, um, when, when anything can be anybody, devices are in everyone's hands. And even when a kid opens up a device on, on, on any of these apps, you know, instead of having a blank screen for someone to define themselves, they give them all these, you know, these categorical things. You know, are you this? Are you this? Are you this? And, and so, so we're so defined and put and corralled. So um, secretly, we're so oblivious when this happens. Um, but... I agree with you. It's, I think you're absolutely right. This is happening. We're being conditioned into these spaces. I don't think we need to have a nefarious character who's behind the whole thing. I think this is simply human behavior. I think human behavior has its own responsibility of, of being caught in its own trauma memories and needing to go in its own hero's journey to, to, to break free, uh, essentially what the Christ story is. So, um, you know, again, um, I feel like this whole 
podcast, at least for me, um, I'm with two brilliant minds and I'm just offering my observations and just my reactions to the, what's being said here. This is profoundly important, amazingly um, smart. I feel smarter with you guys and, and also um, informed with these feelings of emotions and, and, and heaviness. And sometimes when I reach these blocks and my answers don't, don't, um, don't come up anymore. Like I'm realizing some of my answers I've used may not apply anymore. And I'm like, what the hell do I do with this script? Shit. I don't know. And, 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 and to be that person with kids, um, I have a tremendous admiration for parents out there. And, um, for those of you who are listening to this conversation, sticking with it, I think it's amazing. Yeah. Cool. Thank you, David. Yeah. We're at one hour. Let's do a wrap up. Um, okay. Is there, is there uh, anything? Is there no conclusion you want to? Is there a wrap up you want to do, Ryan? Because you pulled in Eric with this. You're the parent of the both of us. Like, is there like a summation you want to do? <laughs> I'm going to parent you right now. Thank you. I'm, a, I'm coming to you with compassion <laughs> and um, boundaries with a time boundary. Yeah. Uh, let's do a. Um, We'll do a thank you so much, and I'll ask Eric if um, if there are you doing are you speaking? Do, are you on a schedule? Are you going to be anywhere talking about your book? I'll and I'll let you uh, talk about that. And then Nate, why don't why don't you close out the show? Does that sound good? Good deal. <clears throat> Eric, thank you so much. That is amazing. Like uh, those of you at home, you can't see, but Nate and I are like grabbing scraps of paper and writing and stuff down. And so, and I know like Nate was saying, you're going to want to also, um, your, um, this is very helpful. And thank you for going from the theory to going to the practical, to going to the, like you brought it down every single time. Um, This is very, very helpful. And I, why I looked up, I was not expecting your book to arrive until June 8. Okay. But Amazon has just told me it's coming on Sunday. Oh, well, take care of that. I will. I will. And um, so, Eric, tell us um, the book's coming out. People can order it. And then I'm assuming you've got a website and you've got a, you're going to be around where people could come here. You talk about your book. Yeah. Uh, right now, we're still, because uh, the world is a weird place. Uh, we're yeah. still kind of formulating some um, things in the future for me to go make some visits uh, around the country. Uh, but at the moment, um, if you're local to me, uh, I live in Knoxville, Tennessee. So if you're in the, in the area, I'm um, doing a, a launch event with the, the South's finest indie bookseller, Union Avenue Books. Um, and we have an Old City Performing Arts Center that hosts our, our local theater company. And they are graciously allowing me to uh, have an event together with both of them. And so we're going to do a book launch event where we'll, I'll speak a little bit, answer some questions, kind of do some of that. And then we'll, we'll sign books. We'll give those away. We'll have some fun time. There might be stickers and cake and all kinds of things. So um, that is available um, on my website. I'll have a link there for you. Uh, people can buy tickets. And with the ticket, you get a book. And I'll write something that you want me to write in there for you. I'm very uh, cheap and easy. I'm happy to just put whatever you want in there. Um, so that, that's okay. Um, and then the, the other thing is that as always, um, feel free to, if you want to, I try not to use it very much, but, uh, I, I have an Instagram, it's just Eric Minton and I have a Twitter account that's actually fake Eric Minton cause it's not really me. Uh, and I also have a website it's www.ericminton.me, which I think is one of the greatest, uh, URL, uh, endpoints that you can get. Um, it's very self-entrusted and, uh, almost narcissistic, which I'm really passionate about. So on all of those, there are links to buy the book. I would say, please buy it from your local indie bookseller. If you can, if not space Bezos, will be happy to beam that down for you, um, at a moment's notice. Um, but, but, um, for all intents and purposes, yeah, I, I love connecting with folks if I feel like I can be helpful. Um, the last little blurb I say is that if anything that you have heard today has caused you to have complicated feelings about where you come from, who you are, what you're currently experiencing, what your kids are experiencing, any of those things, my first and often repeated request 
is for you to please pursue conversations with a local psychotherapist. Um, and I usually tell folks I'm biased, but a good family systems therapist, you don't have to just be in a family, you can be an individual, you can be a couple, you can be any number of things. Um, but family systems therapists just bring an approach to therapy that asks questions about the larger environmental structures that shape the way that you see yourself in the world. And I think frankly, and again, I'm biased, we do a good job of asking those big questions and then kind of working down to what's next? Knowing all of this, what do you want to do now? Uh, and so that's what I would say. If you're if you're noticing things in yourself, you're noticing things in your family, in your kids, in your dogs, whatever, I don't see dogs, um, but please um, look around. And it might take a little while for you to find a good fit, or it might take a little while, frankly, because we're not great at this, and I'm really disappointed in, in terms of the therapy network, of returning phone calls and emails. It's really maddening. Uh, but hang in there, please because seeing a, a, a real life therapist, if you're able to in person to deal with these kinds of things, is really important to you. Even if you don't feel like it's moving anywhere, you taking the time to spend that money on yourself and to have somebody who's paid to just listen to you and pay attention to you is a gift that you deserve. And I would say if it's not a great fit, if you're seeing a therapist and it's not a great fit for you, please talk to him or her about what you need because that is frankly the secret sauce in therapy is having these kinds of conversations with people who you work with and saying, this doesn't work for me, or I need this, or this isn't happening, or I, yeah, just recognizing this isn't, I don't think it's working, I want to need to work on. And a good therapist will say, absolutely, what can we do next? And a bad one will, will get defensive, and that's a good sign, because then you know, I'll find somebody else. Or, but, but frankly, that's what I want to tell people. You knowing in your gut what is and is not a good fit for you when you're seeing a therapist, don't do this alone, you don't need to. So please, again, if you heard something today, don't reach out to me because I'm probably not in your area. I can't see you across state lines. But re but do the work. Go to Psychology Today. They have a great classified section. Or um, just Google what you need in your area. And Dr. Google is happy to provide referrals. Um, but that's my little blurb for that because I, I don't like to leave people hanging. Because again, Nathan, you brought it up and I was thinking it myself. These are complicated things. So please don't deal with them alone or use podcasts to fix it for you. There are other people that want to help you. <laughs> don't use podcasts to fix it. He's right. He's right, folks. Don't use don't use just podcasts to fix it for you. Make yeah. personal connections. And uh, something to remind you all: every guest that we've had here um, throughout the, the podcast season, these are connections we've made personally. Ryan has met people like he's just introduced to you guys when he met Eric, making these weird facial features. Um, the way I met Turner, uh, the early episode, all of our, all, everyone we've met, we, we're hoping that we are modeling um, the conversations that Eric is encouraging to go into the spaces that scare us and to feel confident that, you know, we are, we are equipped to handle these things when we're learning these things. Uh, we, we, sometimes we learn things when we're ready to deal with them. So for more information on Touch Podcast, you can go to touchpodcast.com. If you want to reach Ryan or myself, it's Ryan at touchpodcast.com or Nate at touchpodcast.com. Go to our Patreon if you want to support us. You can even get a free t-shirt um, if, uh, depending on how you support us. And if you have any questions, thoughts, or concerns, you can use the number there to leave a brief message. And if you give us your permission, we'd love to teach you on the episode. So be sure to tell your friends about this episode and how they can listen to it again to get the deeper downloads. And have a great day and an amazing week. And we hope that you are equipped with some new words, some new terms, and some, some new approaches when you go out there uh, into a world full of media, full of channels, through of, filled with consumption, and also filled with you, beautiful you. You in your youngest, pure, Christ-like form. It's a wonderful thing to, to be and to have and to have connection with, with each other in these conversations. Thank you so much, everyone. 